Think you know the Brooks Ghost? Think again. Introducing the all-new, better-than-ever Ghost 16. Now with nitrogen-infused cushioning for lightweight, supreme softness that feels good every step, every street, every single day. So go ahead, take your daily joyride in the all-new nitrogen-infused Ghost 16. It'll turn your everyday miles into everyday endorphins. Let's run there. Head to brooksrunning.com to learn more. Well, we may call this the OHL podcast, but when any hockey league starts talking about a ban on fighting, outlawing everybody's favorite part of the game, he says sarcastically, you know what's going to come up on this episode. Plus, a player that's playing lights out. I think I'm getting a little tired of the must be nice on planet insert player's name here, but nonetheless, and how teams are doing down the stretch as we are into the final week of regular season action in the Ontario Hockey League. My name is Mike Farwell. That guy over there is Dan Mahar. This is the OHL podcast. Find Dan on Twitter at his name, Dan Mahar. I'm at Farwell underscore OHL. And it's hard to ignore, Dan, the news from the queue this past week as reported in the hockey news. Sounds like the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League intends this summer on implementing a new rule that will make it clear, and I'll quote here, in black and white, that fighting is no longer allowed in the game. I've already said enough from my end. I've got thoughts on this, obviously. What are yours, good sir? Well, yeah, and I think it's important for those just tuning in, just hearing this the first time, to set a little bit of context. And that being that the Quebec government during the pandemic had given money to the QMJHL to help them stay afloat during the pandemic with certain conditions. One of those conditions were they didn't want fighting anymore. So this, it, they had a little bit of leeway, a little bit of runway to implement this. And now those chickens are coming to roost, so to speak. So they're, they're actually having to follow through on that, make good on that. So there's a little bit of context there. And we also say when we ban fighting, we're talking about, they haven't settled on penalties yet, but the thinking would be, you just be out of that game. So it may not stop fighting entirely, but certainly removing it from the, the boundaries of the confines of the game or the context of that game. So that's just a little bit of a, a background context for people new to this discussion. But uh, that said, I got to admit, Mike, I'm totally conflicted on this one. Uh, I grew up like a lot of us. I mean, I was a kid in the eighties and nineties where fighting was such an entertaining piece of the game. Everyone had to do it. You're expected to, to, to defend yourself, to be okay with it. Uh, Things have changed, and I think one of the big pieces now, and the government weighed in on this in Quebec when they made this this donation, I guess, to the league, was that there's a, a lawsuit injury insurance component here, a risk component here, too, to anyone who is allowing this to, to transpire. And so I think about all the entertainment that fight fights brought to me over my lifetime in hockey all the added emotion and passion in the game and and there's no doubt it it lent an entertainment element to the game i've had to step back with myself mike and just say but should it should it be entertaining me that teenagers are punching each other in the head in the day of ct and all these other things we now know about it and the recruitment issue if you let your 16 year old son go to the league knowing that he might have to do this might have to defend himself the counterpoint there, of course, is fighting is way down. And generally speaking now, 
no one's having to fight if they don't want to. It tends to be the the pugilists that need to get a few in here and there. It doesn't happen much in junior anymore where, you know, a 16 year old is getting jumped by 19 year old or anything like that. So it has in some ways mitigated itself. And you have to take that into consideration before you say, just throw it all out the window. But Mike, I think to make a long story short, I'm, I'm landing on the side of it is a bit ridiculous that someone would be expected to defend himself with fists in a game of hockey. Um, so it's a little bit outside the context, but I can see where this is heading and I can see why it's heading there. Do you really think still today, Dan, somebody is actually expected to defend themselves with fists in the game of hockey? Or do you think that sometimes two guys just say, you know what, we're going to throw a few punches. Yeah. I think for the most part, that's it, Mike. Like the days are gone when, you know, in the eighties and nineties, which I referenced, there was the whole rookie, the rookies have to fight thing. It was rookie fight night. There were, there were side bets going on. There were things in warm up where things were agreed upon. There was, you know, a bad hit from a previous game was going to have to be avenged. Everyone was going to have to fight. So there was all this stuff and there's still this, bit of a code that exists in the NHL where these things, these things happen, but you're absolutely right. It's my viewing now in junior, it's down to just a handful of guys that, that, you know, need to pick me up for the team. They get a consenting individual on the other team. That's quite comfortable doing it as well. Happens a couple times a year. It's not out of control. It's not a serious risk. I don't see to anyone's safety uh, other than those that are maybe trying to make a go of it through that means. Uh, but you're right. It has changed in a lot of ways, and it's not what it was 20 years ago. So we're a lot closer on this issue than I thought we might be when we had talked ahead of this podcast. A couple of things I'll just pick up on. One is the liability issue. And while I don't disagree in the least, let me just express my general frustration with our litigious ways these days. I'm even going to take it so far, Dan, and I know you can relate to this. I'm going to take it so far as not being able to take your toboggan down a given hill in any given city in this province right now. I'm speaking of Ontario, not Quebec, because heaven forbid somebody might get injured. I think that what should suffice in a situation like that is a sign that gets posted that says, use the hill at your own risk. And I would like to think a similar idea applies when you willingly engage in the sport. Fighting might happen, but to the point we already talked about, it doesn't have to. Nobody has to fight in this game. Frankly, even if you were to get jumped, which really doesn't happen anymore, it's so rare, but you can turtle. You do not have to fight. So yes, in the context of the game of hockey, and I'm going to add in here, basketball, football, even baseball from time to time, you might engage in a little bit of fisticuffs. So that is your acceptance of responsibility as opposed to liability when you willingly engage in participation in the game. Fighting is down dramatically. And I think this is something that we really have to bring to the fore in this conversation around whatever is going to happen in the queue. They can make all the statements they want about making it clear in black and white that fighting is no longer a part of the game. But I don't believe personally, and you can call me a Neanderthal or a knuckle dragger or a knuckle dragging Neanderthal if you want to, but we're not going to in any way, nobody's going to say fighting is banned or to put it another way, fighting will never actually be 
expand. What can happen and what likely will happen in Quebec this summer is a rule will be implemented where the penalties for fighting are even more severe than they are now. So in the Ontario Hockey League, we know that fighting is down dramatically because the three fight rule is now in place. Started at 10, it's been brought down to three. Every fight after three, you get a two game suspension. Ain't nobody want a two game suspension. The instigator rule has cut down on some of the shenanigans and so on and so forth. Nobody wants to get the two, five and 10, et cetera. So that's what's brought fighting down to the level where it's at right now. Might it be reduced even further if, for example, the queue says a fight means five in a game or five in a game plus a one or two game suspension, which is where I think the queue is going to go with this. And that might decrease it even further. But I'm with you having grown up in an era where the fighting part of the game was entertainment value. You kind of cheered for the enforcers out there. Right. How much did we love Ty Domi? I know you're not a Leafs fan, but in Toronto, when he was the heavyweight champion of the National Hockey League, that was a badge of honor for a fan base. Those days are long gone. I admit to getting into them and enjoying them and cheering on the fights as much as I cheered on the goals. Wendell Clark, a guy that could do both and so on and so forth. The game has changed dramatically since then. I think we're in a really good place. If you want to make things a little bit stricter, go ahead. We should be careful, and I think there's a lot of noise right now around the signals from the Quebec League about whatever this new rule is going to look like. All it's going to be is a stiffer penalty for fighting, in my opinion. You're right. The devil's in the details, and some of these are semantic discussions because I, we need a new podcast for me to go over all the ways I, I feel like lawyers, liability, insurance, and risk management are, are ruining things. Um, having said that, there's a language piece here, Mike, and I think you referenced it with with it's not banned. These, these will still happen, but obviously there was some legal advice happening with the Quebec League and I'm sure with other leagues saying it's about how you word it. If you say fighting is not allowed in our game, players will be kicked out of the game. That is much better from a legal perspective. If something happens, then uh, you got five minutes and come back in the game and do it again. So they're acting completely on, on legalities and liability. Um, and that's why it's worded that way. And you won't necessarily ever get it completely out of the game. You just want to have the wording to cover you. CYA, if you will, when you get to, to courts. Uh, the only other point I'd make, and this might be the part where I depart from you a little bit. Because um, I I, love, I used to love it. I'll be the first time I used to go to games just waiting, just, just so excited when those gloves came off. I, the troubling piece, though, is what we know now about CTE, and you referenced Taidomi, and you referenced a lot of his his colleagues from that era who had terrible outcomes in life due to that, what we now know, and shocking, being punched in the head repeatedly over time is not good for the human brain and not good for your for your life. So I think knowing that, it's kind of irresponsible for the adults in charge to to allow much of this to go on. So that's the only point that I I'm struggling with Mike, as much as it brought to the game, it's not my head getting punched. So who am I really to tell them that, that they should continue? I think that's a great point. And here's my point on that point. And I'll preface this by saying I'm not a doctor and in fairness, I haven't sought medical advice before forming this opinion, but here's my belief because I think you're absolutely right. 
and what we know about head injuries and brain trauma and CTE tells us absolutely what you just said. Getting punched in the head repeatedly is not a great thing. And at the risk of being insensitive to some of those peers of Ty Domi that you talked about, the Wade Belaks, the Bob Proberts, and, and so many others who have tragically left us now, and we have to ask the question, and I think it's the right question to ask, etc. I'll carry this to the news in the Quebec Major Junior Hockey League and how Enrico Ciccone is one of the people who is really pushing for these stricter rules slash bans on fighting in the game. We all know what kind of player Enrico Ciccone was when he played hockey, right? My point in this, again, having not sought any medical advice or opinion on this, and I'm not a doctor myself, we know this, but those kinds of players, Dan, don't exist anymore. Nobody is being asked to go out. Nobody even does go out and fight 20 or 30 or more times per season. Hell, they don't even fight 10 times per season anymore. So if over the course of a given hockey season, you engage in, let's say, and I'll just use the Kitchener Rangers as an example, because they've got two players on the team, I believe, who have reached their three-fight limit this year. That's it. So two guys out of a roster of 23 have engaged in three total fights for the season. I don't want to diminish it. I'm not the one getting punched. I know this, but I don't think engaging in three fights per season or two or four or whatever is anything close to what we used to see in the game. So for me, yes, let's be serious about head injuries. Let's talk about the impact of CTE later in life, etc. I don't think fighting is the primary thing to be worried about here. I think the equipment that we wear and the reckless abandon with which we throw around elbows and shoulders to the head, et cetera, is where the real danger lies. And fighting has been reduced to such a level that, again, I'm not the one being punched and I'm not a doctor, but I don't think that's where our concern has to be when it comes to CTE anymore. So no disrespect to Enrico Ciccone, there isn't a player like him anymore nobody is being asked to do what he used to do i think it's time for him to dial it back a little bit yeah and that's fair and you hear that argument i hear that argument all the time is that well the second you had the deterrent out of the game you're going to see more of those elbows and more of those sticks they can they can make the argument that maybe there will be more head injuries without fighting and and you could you could go with that logic and, and potentially at the root of it, though, it does seem like it's a little bit hypocritical for leagues to say that, you know, we're all about headshots, not having that anymore. Oh, by the way, you, you can fight, though, because where the whole purpose is to deliver headshots. So it's it, it it's a tough, tough argument, tough dynamic with this one, Mike. And I, and I hear you. It's nowhere near the same. You don't have Enrico Ciccone's. You don't have uh, the names you, you rattled off and Derek Bugard, Rick Rippin, who also had her early demises from, from the role they played. And so as much as I'd like to call Enrico Ciccone on maybe his hypocrisy, I'd also like to say, maybe, maybe we should listen to a guy like that who lived that life play. And then in his second phase of life, if you will, has decided that's, that isn't right. Looking back, I mean, I'm now dealing with some of the things that that uh, I would not like to be dealing with and would have done things differently. So maybe maybe he's the most authoritative, authoritative person to speak on it. You know, 
it, it takes me back to a, a previous episode of this podcast, one of our feature interview episodes where I was getting messages from fans. You got to get somebody on from the Niagara Falls Thunder. Get on, get on a former Niagara Falls player. So Jason Clark comes on the podcast and Jason Clark was one of those guys that was expected to do this very thing. And he very passionately appealed to all of our listeners at the time. Hey, just give some thought to this again. Jason Clark was the kind of guy that was going out there and fighting 30 or 40 times a season. It was almost every other night because that's the era he played in. And he knew for survival in the game, like literally if he wanted to continue playing it at a higher level, this was his ticket because he wasn't going to be the most skilled guy on the ice. Our feature interview for the OHL podcast this Friday is going to be with another guy who played that role both in the Ontario Hockey League and then on into the pros. Not quite at the same level, but again, and he's not complaining. In fact, if you look up his, uh, if you Google his name right now, it will come up that he's still a professional boxer. Go figure. That's what he did after hockey for a spell. But nonetheless, I think your point on the hypocrisy is well taken, but I do want to go a step further too on the stick work. Look, I think that the shots to the head are happening too frequently anyway. And I think that I don't think that has anything to do with the reduction in fighting. I think that has to do with the reckless abandon that we feel or the players feel inside that equipment. You and I both know what it was like in our day. Like that old joke about strapping Sears catalogs to your shins for shin pads isn't all that far from the protection that we had with elbow pads, shoulder pads, shin pads, equipment in general back in the day. So these these mini suits of armor that players are wearing today is, is a pretty serious concern to me, but the other thing, and this is where I'm, I'm going to stand on this. And again, I'm going to drag my knuckles, like scrape them. Okay. By saying this, but I believe Dan, and I've watched this game for long enough, I think to say that the, the deterrent, however slight of fighting needs to stay in hockey even more than basketball, football, baseball, etc. Because the players engaged in hockey have this thing in their hands that's like a spear and they can swing it and they can slash with it and they can do all kinds of things with it that I think we're going to see a lot more of if we don't have some way for the players to police themselves i don't know i know that's a really antiquated jurassic kind of point of view but i stand by it we can't let the rats run the game you know and i and i know just taking taking a slight counterpoint i i've played with guys who are going to cringe hearing me say this because they love that part of the game they wholeheartedly agreed with you and i'm not saying that that wasn't valued and whatnot but uh there is there are two components to this as well. When you take fighting in and of itself, that has nothing to do with the sport. That's a totally different dynamic. That's a, It is like putting a boxing match in the midst of a hockey game. You don't see baseball teams dressing a goon in case something breaks out, basketball teams, but even football teams, which is an extremely physical, for uh, aggressive sport. They don't need to do it. So what hockey is doing by having these players on the ice is in some ways creating that dynamic where it's expected, where if that player is no longer needed, because that's a different thing he's doing, you need someone that can actually play hockey in that slot. And you have fewer players with that inclination, with that instinct. So you have a different dynamic all around. So fewer of those players in the game, less of the cheap stuff. What those other sports, and I know there's 
consistencies of officiating uh, issues all over the place. But particularly with the NFL, what they do really well is enforce the heck out of that stuff. Like you can't get away with the kicks, the spitting, the bite, whatever they the rats were doing to incite violence. So it, you might need a higher level of enforcement on those things uh, and leave it up to the, the police to police. You don't want vigilante justice on the street. So I'm not sure we need it in the hockey game either. I think that's a really good point on the enforcement of existing rules and how much how much closer we have to watch for that quote unquote little stuff, right? I think that's an excellent point. And to your point on baseball teams and basketball teams and even football teams not dressing that designated goon, I will come back to the fact that nobody does that in hockey anymore. That role simply doesn't exist. And I think that's good. And I think that where we're at and if we're going to make things a little stricter in the queue this summer which all indications suggest we are this will eventually almost work itself right out of the game on its own kind of like a natural evolution here's one of the other points i wanted to bring to this and it might tie in a little bit with our litigious ways today you know heaven forbid kids tumble off a toboggan rocketing down a hill having fun in the winter time but it takes me back to when i was a kid and you know, our parents, like you're grabbing your toboggan, you're pulling over the hill. Nobody thought twice, well, how big's the hill? How fast are you going down? Do you have a helmet on? Did our parents not care? And I bring this up because I, I sampled a, a number of people before this podcast about where the queue is headed, what it might mean for the game. And a couple of them played the game at a pretty high level. And they talked about the uneasiness that they feel with their own kids right now as they're coming up in hockey playing pretty well eventually going to be at a level in the game where they might end up in a fight and they don't love the feeling of their kid being in a fight on the ice i don't have that problem i don't have a kid that's playing hockey but that was interesting to me especially because the parent saying this was himself a guy that didn't mind mixing it up when he played the game. So one of the other people in this circle that I was talking to said, well, do you think your dad cared or your parents cared when you were in a fight? He's like, no, probably not. So I don't know what that says. I don't know what that means. I just thought it was interesting and I'd throw it out there. It, it is interesting. And of course, no one cares till something happens, right? Then it's, oh, what went wrong? Then it's hindsight trying to figure out who to point the finger at. And But your point though comes around to just general side. There's, a, there's studies out there. I remember one famous one around playground equipment and all the safety modifications that have been made and there was some data showing that it raised it was bringing up kids who were less aware and able and able to protect themselves and stuff because they had been coddled so much they weren't they didn't develop that ability to protect themselves and so i'm not necessarily saying that oh, we gotta let them fight at a young age so that in case they get in a fight later saying there is something to be said for for having that awareness and about how you carry yourself and conduct yourself on the ice and and to protect yourself but certainly not with the expectation that some some thug's going to beat your head in if they if you do something they don't like. So I think there's a middle ground, but I think Mike probably the most salient thing that's come out of this whole discussion is what you said about how it's pretty much gone as is and I think maybe we're making uh, much ado about nothing because really this is just a a little bit of wording here. They know fighting's basically gone and they're just saying let's word it a little more carefully so that if something happens, the lawyers say, yeah, yeah, they, they banned it. Where really they know, like you said, it's been, it's been disappearing for a long time now. 
way to ruin this whole episode of the OHL podcast, Dan. <laughs> but that, that that's really it, though. Like you you put out a story like that, and I'm not I'm not knocking Tony at the Hockey News for the story that he wrote. It's it's perfect. It's got all of hockey talking, right? Tim and friends on Sportsnet were talking about it. Everybody's talking about it, not just major junior hockey. So of course, but we we react immediately because for whatever reason we are so attached to the fighting element of the game right but what you just said and as i alluded to at the outset of all of this the devil will absolutely be in the details but i i'm willing to to guarantee to you right now here's your here's your farwell guarantee when june rolls around and the queue comes out with this rule that in black and white will make it clear that fighting's no longer allowed in the game it's just going to be a stiffer penalty for fighting. That's yeah. all it's going to be. I'm guessing it will actually add a suspension to the five-minute penalty plus a game misconduct. That's my that's my suspicion. I don't know. I'm not in the queue, but that's what I think is going to happen. We'll see. And, of course, we'll talk about it when we do get the rule, and we'll probably go over some of this same ground again. Yeah, I would 100% agree with you on that one, Mike. That's exactly what we're going to see, in my opinion. Oh. One more quick point on this before we move on, because we've got other stuff to talk about, including planet so-and-so and the rundown towards the playoffs here in the OHL. But you, when you talked about playground equipment and kids getting hurt more because they didn't know how to you know, protect themselves from the more dangerous stuff, again, at the risk of being the old guy, eat the dirt. Like Just go out there and eat some <laughs> dirt once in a while. But it was also when I was talking about this with some other hockey people. It, the idea came up of, well, what happens when, like, let's say this was a flat out ban or, you know, fighting came out of the major junior game to the point that it wasn't in existence anymore. Like, like you talked about earlier, you know, we don't want to have the, the spectacle of entertainment with teenagers punching one another. So it, it leaves the game at this level. What happens at the next level when, grown adults are playing the game in the national hockey league or dare i say worse still in the american league where guys might be mid to late 30s still kind of hanging on and you got a 22 23 year old kid coming in and all of a sudden they're in their first fight ever and they have no idea no idea what to do in that fight remember rob lowe and young blood yeah dad had to teach him how to do it when he went back out there <laughs> yeah with the two hand stick over the head that was a get a stick away from him first part well you know that's how you that's how you fight uh, exactly but yeah i know you you're right the only the only difference obviously i think the nhl has work to do around making guys fight after a clean hit obviously but the big difference of course and everyone's probably screaming in the background here is consenting adults versus kids as young as 16 17 and that's a, a huge difference in the eyes of most people and probably the law <laughs> damn the, the lawyers are ruining everything Dan. I know, I know. everything <laughs> all right who's on planet what and the teams that seem to be in the best position as we head into the stretch of another ontario hockey league regular season plus of course prospects of the week Let's get to that planet, Dan. Uh, you brought the name forward, but allow me to share just some of the numbers that I wrote down because they are so absolutely ridiculous. 59 points 
in 30 games. We'll start there. Uh, that's good for fifth among Ontario Hockey League defense scoring in 30 games, 59 points. Currently, riding a 15-game point streak, which is the fifth longest in the league this season, over those 15 games, 33 points, two hat tricks, and 11 points plus one of those hat tricks in the past three games alone. Are you getting dizzy yet? Because all of this is from one player. Not only is 59 points in 30 games fifth among D scoring in the Ontario Hockey League, it's top 50 overall out of some 600 skaters in the O. This guy's top 50 in just 30 games. And it's just the numbers are just so ridiculous of the 30 games that he has played. He's got points in 26 of them. So at more than 80% of the games he's involved in, he's only not gotten points four times. Do tell me more Dan Mahar about Mr. Brant Clark, or should we say Clark Kent? Yeah, honestly, like when I, when I, Saw some of the stat lines on this guy. I just the the name, or sorry, the word that came to mind was stupid. These numbers are just stupid. They're ridiculous. If you if you had told me there's a defenseman in this league that put up 59 points, that that's a heck of a season. Plus 39, that's an insane season. What he only played less than half of the season. So like you're talking about like full season. This guy's over 120 points plus 80. Like the, if ever a stat line said too good for this league. This stat line says it. And we talked a lot about the uh, trade deadline. Of course, his name came up, whether he would be moved. And we thought, no, he'd probably the peace Barry was waiting for. They kept him as expected. And boy, it's hard to argue that he wasn't by far the best addition at the deadline among some pretty good additions. Just sick numbers. If I'm not mistaken, boy, uh, I'm going to show my age now by having a bad memory. But it was it was the beginning of this current season that there was talk, not a lot, but that Wyatt Johnston could come back to the league too, right? I'm not wrong about that. You were not right. There was, I, I heard it handicapped before the year at 40-60, uh, 40% chance coming back. Okay. So I, I just, I was thinking of that because of course, along with Wyatt Johnston, the other player that a lot of people were talking about was Shane Wright. And then even as the season went on and it became more and more clear that Wyatt Johnston was staying right where he was and where he belongs in the National Hockey League. But the Shane Wright talk picked up and and then, of course, everything going on with Seattle. And we've talked about Shane Wright on this podcast quite a bit. But I don't think there's any arguing, quite frankly, at this point, Dan, that Brant Clark has had the bigger impact in his return to this league and, frankly, was was the best addition to any team in the O at the trade deadline this year. And Barry just had to keep his rights protected and not trade him away. Yeah. And I think you could make the argument, generally speaking, or at least I would, that a, a number one defender is the most important chip you can possibly add because you talk about the offense and the points they add, but you're talking about guys that log 30 minutes a game, sometimes a little higher. And when you go into the playoffs, they match up against the top lines and are your top defender as well and can just log those type of minutes. And you're you're looking at half of a game where you know you're in control. That's huge value to a team. And and it's not a knock on Shane Wright, who who obviously has had a, a great impact on Windsor when he's been in the lineup and is a great addition. 
I'm just not sure if Ford can quite have the impact a guy like a number one defenseman like Clark can do. And so I, I yeah, I think there's no doubt, Mike, that there's <laughs> there's no one that touches this guy in terms of additions after the deadline. So if you're North Bay, which absolutely is a team that has gone all in Peterborough, another team that has gone all in Ottawa, the team that just won the regular season title for the third time in four years. Uh, Let that sink in for a minute in junior hockey, three OHL regular season championships in four years. The cycle doesn't seem to exist. And I would, I would argue the addition of Minchikov without giving up a roster player and Logan Morrison is almost more like tweaking in Ottawa than all in. Although I guess we could argue about the picks they surrendered, but anyway, those three teams are, are they nervous? Should they be nervous watching what Brant Clark is doing right now in Barry? Oh, for sure. I, you called it tweaking in Ottawa. And obviously those are two pretty big tweaks when you, but, but the, the point stands, if it's two players you're adding to your dynamic, to your dressing room. You have to simulate that. You don't know how it's going to change the culture and how things are going to work. And there was a little bit of a growing period when, when they brought over those two players and you see it in the NHL right now with the Leafs adding so many players to their lineup and some of these other teams, there's a whole culture you have to fix after that and and get players accustomed to each other. Barry may be ahead of the game in the sense that Brant Clark was known in that dressing room. He's already assimilated. He's part of the culture. He's part of the team. So he steps in without the team missing a beat, and that that much is clear. So I, I think the other guy, Mike, who I, who I argued was probably the next biggest addition at the trade deadline – plays for the Sarnia Sting and Ethan Del Mastro. And for the same reasons as Brant Clark, obviously not quite as dynamic, no one is, but just that dynamic you lend to, well, now you've got this, this beast out there for 30 minutes a night that can do it in all three zones and everyone else slides a slot down as well. And they're getting more sheltered matchups there. It just changes the whole dynamic. So to answer your question, I, I would absolutely be worried about facing the Barry Colts based on that alone, but they're a potent team even before uh, Brent Clark came back. So, so yes, I would be scared. I'm glad you brought up the Sarnia Sting and Del Mastro. The Sarnia Sting was a team whose defense I didn't mind before Ethan Del Mastro got there. I've always been an Ethan Ritchie guy for whatever reason, Ryan Mast, Nolan Dillingham. And then you go and add Del Mastro and Christian Cairo to that back end. I had the chance. I'm not sure I mentioned it on the pod last week, but just prior to last week's pod, I had a, a a personal viewing of the Sarnia Sting in a Sunday afternoon game. And Benjamin Godreau, who you would think on a team like that, would just have to be average. And he was well above average. And I, I'm not trying to diminish, of course, a guy that was rightfully on, on Canada's junior roster this year and is rightfully headed to the National Hockey League someday. But with everything that the Sarnia Sting have firepower up front strength on the blue line. You would think all they need is an average goaltender. And then Godro just had a terrific game. And you're like, wow, this team is scary good. And we should acknowledge the Sarnia Sting because they're having themselves a little moment right now as we head towards the playoffs. Yeah. Well, I'm on record with you, Mike. So I may as well go on record on the pod as saying that the Sarnia Sting, I consider the scariest team in the league right now. And there's a lot of scary teams. It's not a knock on Windsor and London and Barry and Ottawa and North Bay and all the teams we've mentioned. 
I think they're the best of the best right now. And I look at that lineup and it's just so potent throughout. I uh, can't overlook Luca Del Belbaluz, who was brought in with Del Mastro. Like that's a pretty big chip there too. That's just giving them another bigger body that can that can finish, can get on the back check. That team doesn't really have any weaknesses. I think people questioned Benjamin Godra, who you referenced, didn't have a great start to the year. People were a little worried. Are they going to get the saves when they need them after moving Anson Thornton? If Benjamin Godreau is on his game, which we've seen lately, can be the best goalie in this league. So if you look at it in that context, you maybe have the best goalie in the league playing for a team like that up front. Look out. Sarnia is the one, the team I would least like to face right now. Nolan Burke, uh, just this past week, joins Matt Maggio as two 50-goal scorers in the Ontario Hockey League. Congratulations to Burke. I just have to take this half a step further because when you mention Godreau and his numbers, it just made me think back to Barry, Anson Thornton. They they were a tandem in Sarnia until Thornton got traded up to Barry. Their numbers, by the way, are eerily similar, which is just bizarre to think about, but they're so close in each statistical category could you imagine? Because it could almost easily come to pass. Godro v. Thornton in the OHL final, Sarnia and Barry. How great would that subplot be? Oh, what a storyline that would be. And you, and you know, it wasn't a slight on Thornton that they moved and they knew they had two world-class goalies there. And one, one had to go, one had to stay. And they, there's only one net, uh, but what a storyline that would be if they faced off and, you can see a pathway there clearly, Mike. It's it's not too uh, far from the realm of possibility to see that happening. Before we start getting the nasty emails from, from Windsor and from Peterborough and from North Bay and from Ottawa and from London, we're not trying to be dismissive of your teams. Settle down. We're just talking about some reasons that we like other teams. I'm still, no offense to James Boyd and company, I love what Ottawa has been able to do over the past four seasons with three regular season titles. I like North Bay in the East still. We'll talk. I shouldn't get too far ahead of myself because we'll do a playoff preview, but, and boy, oh boy, do I like that Sarnia team in the West because that's how this part of the conversation started. I did want to share just a few numbers because it got me thinking back to last season. So the reason we talk about the moment that uh, Sarnia is having is because they've gone, what, 15 games now without a regulation loss, right? So I thought, okay, that's a that's a heck of a nice run. The last regulation loss for the Sarnia Sting came on February the 12th. So two months ago, fans, two months ago, the last regulation loss, it was up in the Sioux. They lost 7-3. They're 11-0-1-3 since that time. It, it just got me thinking back to the Hamilton Bulldogs last year, the OHL champions, right? Because I remembered some ridiculous number for Hamilton from essentially the trade deadline on. So I went back and looked and from Christmas last year. So this is 21, 22, the Hamilton Bulldogs from Christmas until the end of the season lost four games in regulation four out of fifth, out of 40, they were 35, four and one from Christmas to the regular season. Then they swept their way to the OHL final. So make them, 47, 4, and 1 from December the 30th until June the 3rd when they lost the first game of the OHL final to Windsor. So you go from December the 30th until June the 3rd 
with four regulation losses. That was Hamilton last year. Listen, Sarnia, you're doing okay, but not that okay. Still, since Christmas, uh, the Sarnia Sting are 22, 7, 1, and 2. So 25 of 32, only seven regulation losses. That's still a heck of a number for the Sardius thing. I thought it would be interesting to look back. That those those Hamilton numbers are bananas, but not bad at all for the Sarnia Sting either. Yeah, I know great numbers you pulled there on Hamilton, Mike. December to June, four losses. And guess how many times you have to beat them if you want to eliminate them? Four times in a week, basically. <laughs> so good luck. Good luck. Uh, you know, I know Sarnia's not quite at those numbers right now, but still good luck. They've they've 12 one and 2 in the last 15, and you're going to have to beat him four times in the course of a little over a week. Good luck, guys. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, just before we get to our prospects, uh, I, I came across this on Twitter. I just wanted to throw it out there. Uh, I'm, I'm throwing this at Dan Cold, but I thought it was interesting enough to share. Here are the points earned by teams in the Ontario Hockey League since the trade deadline. Okay. The Barry Colts lead the way, 45 points since the trade deadline. Then Ottawa with 43. Sarnia with 42. North Bay with 40. Windsor with 40. There's your top five, okay? Kitchener, sixth most points since the trade deadline with 37. Guelph, 36. Hamilton, another team we've talked about an awful lot, 36 points since the trade deadline. How about those sneaky Sudbury Wolves? 36 points since the trade deadline. Have you noticed, Dan, a team that I'm yet to mention? That's nine teams, almost half the league I've mentioned, with the most points since the trade deadline. Have you noticed the noticeably absent team? Are they green? They are green. Oh, okay. Just... And they're, <laughs> they're in 10th. 35 points for the London Knights since the trade deadline take it however you want 10th most 10th least but i find that rather intriguing and oh boy if you're a pete's fan we already talked earlier about them being all in 27 points amassed since the trade deadline behind flint behind mississauga behind owen sound and behind those other 10 teams we already mentioned i thought it was interesting i stole it from twitter but it's interesting no, oh, it's fantastic numbers. And and I've said before, and I'll say again, this is as big an arms race as I think I've seen in the OHL in, in certainly in recent memory. A lot of years, like last year, we talked about Hamilton. It was pretty clear for a while that there were two or three dogs at the top and the rest kind of backed off. And that's often the case in the OHL. I've never seen a year like this where you have eight, nine teams that are legitimate powerhouses. So it's going to be one heck of a playoffs. Steve McLean. Uh, big fan in Guelph is who put those numbers out. Just want to give him a shout out for that. Steve, I trusted you. I didn't double check your math. If you let me down, buddy, it's your reputation, not ours on the line. Anyway, thanks for sharing that, Steve. I stole it straight from his Twitter feed. Okay, let's get to our, uh, before we wrap up, of course, prospects of the week this week, Dan, who you got? I'm going to go a little against the grain this time, Mike, because I, I know we like to have someone that had a hot week. Team's doing well. I'm taking the approach of someone that's going a little under the radar as a, as as an underrated prospect that has definite pro potential and projectability, and that's a guy I'd been wanting to pick earlier in the year. Then got a foot injury, 
we're waiting to get another live look at him. And that's uh, Mr. Quinton Burns on, on the Kingston front, Max. And the reason I go there is, oh, a couple things. A 17, that team traded away a lot of, they, they have a young team and you have a 17 year old defender like him being asked to play basically number one minutes, the toughest matchups against some of those players we just referenced often on his offside, have taking reps both on the left and right. A tough thing to do uh, for a player like that, but just watching his explosiveness coming out of his own first few steps, first pass, all those things that pro scouts look for. I just see a lot of projectability there and uh, kind of hidden behind the big boys this year in, in the OHL, but Quentin Burns is is my guy. Who have you got? Anybody watching on our YouTube channel probably saw me turn my head and almost laugh when you mentioned Quinton Burns because he was also on my radar. So I'll give him honorable mention. I, I went away from him. I thought, no, that's recency bias, Farwell. But for all the reasons you just mentioned, uh, certainly enjoyed Burns's game at the Memorial Auditorium on the weekend. By the way, if you're just listening to this on your favorite podcast channel, that's awesome. Thank you. We are on YouTube, on Instagram at the OHL podcast. And remember, Dan's on Twitter at Dan Mahar. And I'm on Twitter at Farwell underscore OHL. You can email anytime, ohlpodcast at rogers.com. I'm going back to the well on this one. I can't remember if I made him a prospect of the week twice. I should keep notes. I know I did once for sure. And I know I also mentioned him coming into the season as a guy that kind of a sleeper for me that you don't want to overlook. So now that we're coming down towards the end of the season, I'm going to go back to my boy, Colson Petrie in Flint. The Firebirds right now are a team that's quite frankly surprising me. I I really thought when I looked at a log jam of five teams within like four or six points of each other in the West that the, the Firebirds were vulnerable to being caught, but they're just, they're, on fire, no pun intended, wins in nine of their past 10 games. And, oh, over his past 10 games, who's got 11 points? But my boy, Colson Petrie, with three goals and eight assists over that span, getting warmed up at the right time along with the rest of the team. So Colson Petrie is my prospect of the week. And on that point, Dan, I don't know about you. I don't know if I'm reading too much into a nice little run for the Firebirds, but I'm starting to think they might be a pretty darn tough out in the Western Conference playoffs. You're right. You know, they're flying under the radar, and I wanted to give them their proper due. Heck, I Colson Petrie has been on my radar a bit too, but I know you love him so much. I never want to pick him. So, uh, But the Firebirds, people didn't really notice. They had some really huge matchups in the last month and and came out flying and took it to their opponent in those games. And that kind of went under the radar and the Firebirds are quietly just hanging around there and showing up when when they need to. So you're absolutely right, Mike. Do not discount those Flint Firebirds. Six of Petrie's uh, 11 points in those past 10 games against Sarnia, Windsor, Guelph, and Saginaw. Not slouches. And you talk about the teams they've been playing. They came from behind to beat the mighty, mighty London Knights just this past weekend as well. So interesting times i think uh, firebirds fans have have reason to be excited at least somewhat optimistic headed into the postseason should be fun absolutely it's going to be great uh, I, I i don't want to put any money on any of this mike so uh, i'm not a gambler and definitely not this year well in light of that i think i probably already put us on the hook for this but our next episode will come out leading into the playoffs so i don't think we can do anything next week 
other than talk about who's going to win which series as you know, that'll be our playoff preview for sure a week from now. Yeah, looking forward to it because the matchups are going to mean everything. There's some some yet to be settled, but it's going to it's going to be interesting either way. Oh, on, and quickly on that point, the, the finish in the East. I mean, Oshawa finally, I think Oshawa and Kingston had combined for one win in their past 10 games or something like that. A one point differential. Oshawa makes it now three points, but they have to play each other twice. Kingston and Oshawa with three games to go in the regular season. So that's going to come down to the wire in the East. There's that log jam we've already talked about in the West and some jockeying for position. Hamilton still hanging around. I think Peterborough will get that fourth spot and home ice advantage, but we'll see. Okay. Uh, our next episode when Dan and I are together, we just mentioned will be the, the playoff preview for sure. A week from today on Friday, our feature interview, looking forward to this one. I already alluded to it a little bit earlier in this episode, a guy that wasn't shy about dropping them and getting involved physically started with Oshawa traded to the Sioux drafted by the New Jersey devils played for the Leafs played for Dallas played for Nashville. And if you Google his name today, professional boxer will come up as his occupation. I don't think he's still fighting in any way, but that's your uh, preview for your feature guest coming up on the OHL podcast this Friday. He was an entertaining uh, player to watch. <laughs> he is an entertaining as hell. Pardon me, as H-E double hockey sticks interview. I think you'll like it. I hope you're looking forward to it on Friday. That guy over there, he's Dan Mahar. My name is Mike Farwell. Thanks for listening to the OHL podcast. <music>